0: Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. hey hey welcome back to bibliophiles everyone adam andrews with you once again surrounded by my favorite people in the world the literary flying zucchini brothers the center for lit crew (laughs) 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 my son
1: ian (laughs) hello
0: my daughter-in-law emily hi and my wife missy hi how are you guys doing today Great. Doing well. Uh, Isn't it a little
2: slap happy, I think? (laughs) A little jovial. We have
0: have quite
1: a couple of weeks coming up. You (laughs) know,
0: it's a big couple of weeks coming up. There's been several tough weeks uh in the rearview mirror. I'm kind of I'm kind of worn out. I'm slap happy is a pretty good way to describe me. And it's it's late in the (laughs) afternoon, it's it's high summer, it's a little hot, a little close here at Center for Lit Headquarters. (laughs) So we need some sort of a diversion. I got an idea. Let's talk about literature, shall we?
3: Let's do. Sure.
0: Here's the diversion for the day, my friends. An idea that is current in literary circles, in in education circles, in classical education circles, in a lot of the circles that we run in, uh, there's an idea whose currency is only increasing and whose importance seems only to be gaining momentum with every passing day. And that idea is the cultivation of the moral imagination. We talk about it every once in a while in our discussions at Center for Lit. But in the last few weeks, I personally have had reason to to be in a situation where discussing this idea was the point of the gathering, and it seems to be on everybody's lips. And I had a thought about the, the nation, what seems to be a nationwide discussion of the moral imagination that I wanted to throw out to you guys and see if a Center for Lit style discussion on the theme wouldn't yield some provocative results. So, So let me just kind of frame the question this way. Uh, it seems to me that there is a general call among earnest, careful parents and teachers, um, coaches in reading, s- assigners of books to young readers, a general call to be sur- be sure and tend the moral imagination, be sure and cultivate it, provide conditions for it to grow and prosper, and to do this with literature as the primary tool. And uh, my reaction... I have to confess to that idea, when I understand it, is to say, yes, obviously, why would we spend more time saying what is self-evident? Because what I take the idea of the moral imagination to be is that literature is a place where young readers can observe the difference between good and evil and be led to prefer the good. Because in literature well-constructed along these lines, good is presented in, relatively speaking, rosy colors, and evil in dark and brooding ones. Good is presented as a thing that you are being taught to thirst after, or to approve of, or to be attracted to, and evil the thing you're, you're being taught to shun. And it strikes me that the general call to cultivate the moral imagination is a call to make sure that we do this when we read, to see evil as evil, to see good as good, to choose the good over the evil. So my first idea is, yes, of course, obviously, why is that a topic of conversation? Why are we on about it as a culture? That's idea number one. Ian, weigh
1: in. Before
0: you do, before you do, I just want to put a little a cap on my sentence because it seems so obvious.
1: Why would that right. need to be said? Go ahead. Exactly. The only reason I can think of is that there is actually a category of people that, that these thinkers and writers are addressing themselves to. And that that category of people is actually trying to teach the reverse, is, is representing things as good that are in fact evil, and is doing so persistently enough and evidently in attractive enough ways that they're genuinely concerned for the heart of virtue in their, in their little charges. And I suppose to those people, we'd have to say, we're with you, absolutely. Let's go find books that don't do that. Um, but I think maybe the heart of your question has less to do with, is there ever a setting where we need to do it this way, and more to do with the people that you're referring to are talking into a room full of people that already agree with them. So why the need to spend a bunch of time on it,
0: right? I, I guess so. I, I guess so. Because I, I'm very often in, in uh, large groups where disagreement about this is... Non-existent. This is obviously everyone prefers. Everyone in the groups that I'm talking to prefers fidelity to uh, infidelity. To infidelity, prefers vice to virtue. I don't. I um. Yeah. So so maybe that's maybe that's part of it. Emily, go ahead.
2: Well, Mom and I were having this conversation before, and what came up at that time that she said, which I think is true, is that maybe what we're seeing is a transition in the conversation. And we're at a at a new point where it's time to to mature the conversation that the things Ian is talking about are absolutely true that we do live in a world of um, Of people who we disagree with who are relativists who do not see the need to bring up children to love what is good. But you're right, we are we continually enter into rooms where we all agree with one another and so I think that has led us to have some blind spots about this conversation and, and we want to encourage each other and the good work that we're doing. And so we just say the same things over and over again, and maybe it's time for a new conversation to start or to, to build on the old conversation that we're seeing a transition period in educational philosophy in our circles.
0: I am very interested in that idea. When you, when you, you suggest that maybe a new conversation might be on the, on the plate or should be? What does that conversation have characteristics in your mind that you can share? What conversation?
2: Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that we just all assume agreement with one another now, that now we have the conversation with what has been said as the foundation point, and we see what we can build on on top of that. So we all agree with this now. What now? What do we do with this now? Um, Or is it Has it led, has focus on this particular issue led to blind spots in other issues or is it perhaps more complex than it first appeared to be?
3: Yeah, okay, can we talk about who are we arguing with initially? If it really is that there's a conversation that needed to be had, uh, a situation that needed to be addressed historically as readers and educators so that we could recapture the field for cultivating a moral imagination in our ch- our children, which I think I think as as you said, simply means um, teaching children to um, recognize right from wrong, good from evil. Yeah, through narrative stories. Yep. Right, and the narrative story itself being a vehicle to cultivate a love for what's good and a hatred for what's evil. Right. Is that, that's the, that's the goal.
0: That's how I would understand the, the, the cultivation of the moral imagination.
3: Which is age old, right? It it began with Grimm's fairy tales and, um, Hans Christian Andersen and all of those folks. That's what the fairy tale genre was all about, right? Putting in pictures, even, we could even go back to Aesop, Aesop's fables, um, opportunities to gain wisdom through narrative storytelling that represents an adage or a truth or, um, Uh, A character trait, right? Mm -hmm. That we're to either love or to spurn. Um, We receive it better through story than we do through a sermon quite Mm -hmm. often, especially if we're Mm -hmm. five or six, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this is the general idea. And we've taken that idea and run with it because it's so attractive and so effective because stories um, are different from... Um, from nonfiction,
2: mm-hmm. in
3: that they're not propositional, but they're experiential. When we read a story, we're thrust into the heart of um, of an experience. Of a human experience. Yeah, with the main character, and we go along for the ride, <laughs> right? So we learn the things that the, the protagonist is learning. And if it's a good story, if it's a, a well-crafted story, that experience um it it's um, imbued with wisdom so that we become wiser from our armchair without having to go through all the same things that that main character experienced to come by that wisdom. Right. So it's a vicarious and experience.
2: To be fair, don't you think that all of the, the things that seem true to us, uh, obviously, obviously true to us came under attack when the deconstructionists took over literary criticism in the 60s. And it started at adult philosophical levels, but it trickled all the way down to our children. Yes. And I th- don't you think that that is where that initial response came from? Because it really was under attack.
3: I do. I, th- I think um, language itself was under attack as a result of deconstruction and postmodern thought. And you can see that Um, culturally in the retelling of fairy tales that we see going on in in things uh, like shows like Into the Woods, for example, is a prime example of taking fairy tales, right, and quote-unquote modernizing them. Um, That is, taking the nice narrative that comes to a conclusion, right, and flipping it on its head, largely, so that all the loose ends are all those tight ends, all those wrapped up endings are loose again and all bets are off. And good and evil are thrown on their heads, right and wrong. It's is hard to tell drawn the difference. Into question uh, Right. Because in a postmodern world, there's no objective truth. And so reality itself, what is it? We don't know. It depends on your perspective. I think maybe this is one of the things that um, that this conversation is trying to address.
0: So wait a minute. Let me jump in here. You're suggesting, along with Emily's comment, that the the current thirst in the circles that we run in classical education and homeschooling that the the thirst for um, for a a plan for cultivating the moral imagination, for teaching kids to to embrace good and shun evil in the books they read is coming in response, at least in part, to a historical development from the 60s. A
3: philosophical development.
0: Deconstruction in literary criticism, which basically taught a whole generation of academics and therefore school teachers that there is no such thing as good and evil in the books we read, and a lot of other things besides.
3: Or not even really any, I mean, not even really necessarily a fixed narrative, right? That's what the deconstructionists were saying, Um deconstruction teaches you not to read for meaning, but to read meaning into a text. Mm -hmm. And it can be whatever you can cook up with the words that are present on the page. It's very different from a traditional understanding of reading for understanding, reading to understand the other.
2: Mm. There's not only a lack of truth and falsehood in the objective reality of the world, but there's a lack of truth and falsehood when it comes to a particular reading of a text. Mm There is not a more true reading than another. Right.
3: Exactly. Everything's up for grabs.
2: So the whole idea of not just
0: good and evil, but of objective reality is under attack.
3: Yes. From this quarter. Consistent with postmodern thought, right? It's just postmodern thought worked out in language worked out in the things of language, which are obviously literature, at least in part.
0: Well, I think that's hel- that is helpful context at least because it, um, that gives a shade of meaning to what otherwise would be a situation where I could walk in and say, why are we hammering on something that is so that's so patently uh, obvious. Yes. It's so self-evident, right? I'm a loving father. I want my kids to grow up and embrace good and shun evil. And if I give them a book that helps them do that, that's, that's good. Everyone would do that. But, but if, if the people if, the, if people standing up and saying, we need to cultivate the moral imagination are actually saying, in effect, we need to hit back against an intellectual trend which is still ascendant in the academy that says meaning is whatever the reader makes it, there isn't actually any such thing as good and evil because it's just one of many meta-narratives and there are no such thing as, as real meta-narratives, then there's some significance to it that I can
3: get behind, I think. Yeah, I, I think they're trying to, um, to reestablish the fairy tale in a sense, in that regard. The other thing I wonder is if maybe they're pushing back against um, technology, which is moving the attention of an entire generation away from books and written stories to screens. Mm. So maybe they're starting to, um, maybe, maybe there's an impulse there. That explains what we're hearing as well.
1: Ian, go ahead. I just fear that there's that there's an overcorrection taking place because the issue that that we're that we're outlining here with sort of a a knee jerk response to postmodernism and to the the pressure that the relativistic perspective puts on right reading and that sort of thing, makes perfect sense to me. The problem is though, that um, it doesn't take into account genre whatsoever. And the it that I'm using as the the active participant in that particular conversation is the reader or the teacher doesn't take into account genre when they call the purpose of reading and teaching good reading, the cultivation of the moral imagination.
3: You mean we're not just talking about fairy tales?
1: Right. The fairy tale and the fable might absolutely and almost certainly were created specifically for that purpose, right. to cultivate the moral imagination. However, taking all manner of great written art and using it for the same purpose as a fairy tale or a fable dramatically cuts the limbs off of the whole project.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's, it, re- it reduces all novelistic enterprise to a trite exercise in ethics. And the great thing about literature is that it isn't restricted to ethics, it actually comments on the whole of life. I mean, in some senses, it's the master art form for mm-hmm. that right. very reason. Right. I was actually so just yeah. Go to ahead. To actually ahead. bottle all that up and say the whole purpose of this whole project across the centuries is to teach my kid right from wrong. It just and I don't I don't mean this in a cruel way at all, but it's kind of ludicrous. It's a little bit of a ludicrous well, thing well, to say. Well,
3: it's limiting. You can certainly do that with literature. There usually is some sort of moralistic fiber if we're reading literature that truly reflects life. But oftentimes, you miss the larger content of the reading matter by attempting to turn it into a moralistic treatise, which I would agree with you. Which is Does, a subtle rephrasing think, of
1: exactly what I just said. <laughs> well, I
3: think what I, it, depends on, it depends on your goal. And I think that our goals ought to be to teach our children to appreciate the whole of the artistic experience, not just one facet of it.
0: You could say, with respect to Into the Woods, which you mentioned a minute ago, Missy, that it that it may have it may do violence to the fairy tales that are the subject of its plot, but it bears um, fair. Uh, you might say it bears faithful resemblance to how the world actually works. There well, are some I... observations about the shades of difference between good and evil, or the complexities of the issues that it bears witness to that you might not even get in a fairy tale that speaking to what Ian just said a minute ago about genre, right? It doesn't necessarily this, this, this desire to cultivate the moral imagination um, can oversimplify the subtle differences between genres. Is that fair? Ian?
1: Yeah. Let me me try one more time. Um, The teaching of ethics is manifestly good and we should absolutely do it. And such teaching can absolutely be benefited by the reading of great literature. Mm -hmm. All of that being said, and like we've been talking about this whole time, it's a very obvious thing to say. To teach literature as only the study of ethics isn't true to the art form. Because there's more going on in a work of literature than that. Now, it's true to the art form of a fable. Yes. Or of a fairy tale. But again, literature being what I would call one of the master arts, um, it encompasses way more in terms of genre with different purposes for each one of them than simply fairy tales and fables. I
2: agree. Well, for example, I take issue with the idea that Into the Woods violates a fairy tale because it hasn't done anything to the fairy tale. You can still go get Cinderella in its original form. What Sondheim did was create a new work of art that that demands its own attention and respect. It's, and not, that the, it's not the same genre anymore.
3: That faithfully represents a particular philosophical trend.
1: Well, and let's take it one step further here. If our whole goal in, in viewing works of art is to cultivate the moral imagination, we would have absolutely no choice as, um, as Christian readers but to read into the woods and go, well, that doesn't deserve a place anywhere near any of our minds and hearts because of all the craziness that goes down in that particular adaptation of the situation, right? Mm.
3: Well, I don't know about that really, though. It depends on who's reading it, right? I might not hand it to my five-year-old. In fact, I certainly would not. But I think... If
1: your whole goal was... No, 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 hold on. The the precondition to my statement was the whole goal here is cultivating the moral imagination. Do you think Sondheim holds up the moral imagination in every particular in this play?
3: Well, it's interesting. No, obviously. But what I think is by reading Sondheim, my own moral imagination is stimulated to consider postmodernism against the Christian tradition.
0: And I... Th- that is either importing an idea into the concept of the moral imagination that I don't sense there, or it's a deeper understanding of it than I have.
3: See, if we're going to talk about a moral imagination, what we're basically, what we ought to be talking about, not as five-year-olds, but as grown adults, is the larger issues of comparison between worldview Worldview
0: comparison, right? yeah.
3: Isn't that ultimately the goal with with this kind of thinking? We should Absolutely, be but to let's not bundle as worldview thinkers.
1: Let's, let's not bundle that in with the the coaching of the moral imagination.
3: So all um, that you really um, are talking about trouble
1: to draw a line between that and good reading. Like I
3: So all you're just you're simply talking about moralizing through story.
0: Well that's that, that maybe that's a subject of our that that we ought to take up is that what is generally meant by cultivating okay. the moral imagination That's
3: what I want. I want someone to tell me what is meant by this term because we're bandying about bandying it about as you say all over the place. Everybody's on about the moral imagination and I feel like you do. I mean, yeah, of course. I can't well, I've it, never talked to a homeschool parent or a classical educator that would say anything but absolutely we should be holding up the good the true and the beautiful before the eyes of our students so that they would know the good and know the evil and choose the one and shun, shun the, the other. other of course why but this is what is problematic
2: with? to cultivate the moral imagination is to uh, to instill in your soul a love that's to order your loves properly right to love what is virtuous the problem is that Um, when you're looking for this out of literature, what you're looking for is some, it doesn't have to be the primary. It doesn't have to be the um, only thing that happens, but there has to be one example of virtue in the book that you can cling to. So what about the books that don't have them? That's what the problem is.
0: Right. And I, let me jump in here. I actually think it's a problem with, um, the re- the, our understanding of the reading process, because on whatever side of the fence you're on, um, you assume, along with everybody else in the conversation, this proposition, and I've heard, I've heard it said, that you become what you behold. This is the essential assumption that we make as readers, that rubbing up against something will eventually turn you into that something, And so, in order to cultivate the moral imagination properly, there has to be at least one virtuous character in the book that you can cling to. The problem is that that idea, that you become what you behold, is arguable at best when it comes to literature. At least I would say, I would say there is a a species of cultivation of the moral imagination that comes from reading something from the wrong worldview that makes the wrong conclusions about everything Mm -hmm. that interacting with it properly understanding it on its own terms is a form of cultivation of your own moral imagination, though there be no virtuous characters in it at all.
3: You mean you could sometimes learn more from a bad book than a good book?
0: I think maybe you could. Um, I think it's worth saying that you become what you behold um, is a sentence from a William Blake poem. That's who wrote that. You become what you behold. It wasn't, Jesus, or Moses, or Socrates, or any of the respected teachers of our moral and ethical tradition. It was the wacko William Blake, who actually, among other things, also said, if you have an urge and you don't follow it all the way to the end, you're a coward. That's William Blake's philosophy. That's the guy who told us that we become what we behold. Now, we, it, he may have been right but I think William Blake may not be the place we wanna get our philosophy of ethics and reading.
3: Well, moreover, if, if it's true that we become what we behold, then none of us should be reading anything except the Bible, right? right? And only select portions of that. We should only be reading the words of Christ. We should only be gazing at the image of Christ all day long, every day. And anything human, um, well, in that regard, I'm not really sure because humanity's depraved and by beholding another human being, um, I'm just compounding my own depravity.
2: There's, well, it's true because the virtuous example in literature was created by a human being. And who's to say that's that's not the inspired word of God. Who's to say he's right? Who's good out there interpreting what is virtuous?
0: Good question. There's an, there's an implication of that idea that we all read with that assumption that we become what we behold, which is that the purpose of reading is to somehow mold and shape us
3: or to a, improve ourselves. It's
0: an internal, a looking inward as readers to what the book is going to do to us. I wonder it's how a, many
3: of our, of our listeners actually read like that themselves. Lay aside your teaching of your children for a moment and think about yourself as a reader. How many of you truly pick up on the a book, pick up a book on the basis of whether or not it's going to improve your moral fiber?
2: Well, I don't think that the, the quote person that we're categorizing is really someone at all. I think we're dealing with ideas here and sorting out. We're, we're drawing things in black and white. So as to make the conversation clear, I think, but I don't think anyone takes such a stark stance as we've described.
0: Right. But I think what, what mom is saying is that we don't actually find ourselves reading like this.
3: No, in general,
0: we read for another reason altogether, which is to encounter the other, right. To look out. To have new experiences, not
3: well, reinforce
0: and, our old ones. And
3: to discover what a human being actually is. And it turns out a human being is a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. And so when we read about human beings and when the, the author does a good job of creating a likeness, then we better understand ourselves and our neighbors. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we stop being sinners or that we climb the ladder towards righteousness through reading these books. We just come to better see ourselves. Because really, truth be told, if we're Christians, then we should be espousing the fact that no book that we read is going to make us righteous. Only God produces righteousness in the human heart. And usually that comes through showing us a mirror and bringing us to some form of repentance, not by improving our moral fiber
0: I want to jump in on that issue and and toss out an actual example that I think gives a little twist to this um, to this discussion, and it's the example of melodrama or caricature in literature, um, that that I think throws a twist in here. For this reason, I just finished reading *Dombey and Son* by Charles Dickens, and I don't know how many of you have read *Dombey and Son*. It's a good thousand pages worth, so if you start in, uh, you know. Strap on your nose bag and get ready to in for a while. But um, it is a, it's not all, all the way into melodrama, but its pages are populated almost exclusively with caricatures. And there are super, super evil ones and super, super good ones. And none of them is particularly realistic. In fact, while on the one hand, I would say that good and evil are, are painted for you in, in very bold strokes, there isn't a relatable character in the whole story. It's almost mm. as if Dickens is going beyond saying, this is human nature in all of its subtlety and nuance, and saying, here's a cast full of cardboard characters for you to watch do their predetermined thing across the stage. The main character is Paul Dombey, who's a, who's a shipping merchant and an f- extremely wealthy man, who has, a, who has two children, a daughter that he ignores... And a little son that he wants to grow up and take his place beside his father as Dombian's son, the great um, mercantile masters of the world. And his son is sickly and dies of tuberculosis at age eight. And so instead of turning to his daughter and saying, well, well, it'll be Dombian's daughter instead, and being a father to her, he blames her and shuns her and finally assaults her physically and drives her physically from his house at the penultimate climax of the story he is repeatedly inhumanly um, unconvincingly cruel to his daughter who, by the way, doesn't have a spot on her soul anywhere and is nothing but, you know what I mean? She's the, she's the ultimate beleaguered daughter who just loves her Papa with all her heart. And, you know, uh, curls up in the hall outside his study all night long, every night, and then scammers back up to bed before he wakes up. So he won't know that she was there crying her piteous soul out because of the abandonment that she, I mean, it's just, it's over the top. It's completely over the top. So I, we don't learn anything about human nature from this story, except that if you take it to its inhuman, unconvincing extremes, you have a really dramatic story.
1: So by that rubric, you could argue that this isn't a novel.
3: It's a morality tale.
1: It's something else, right? we we're forced to ask the question of, of genre by those caricatures because they're not rounded human people.
0: Okay, okay, maybe because I because I, I stand by my characterization of this of this novel, if you want to call it that. That is how he does his characters. Here's the thing, though, that I want to throw in. I was moved. I was moved. By both Paul Dombey's black-hearted cruelty and Little Florence's pure as the driven snow virtue, it was a moving story.
3: Some morality tales. So are. how do
0: you explain that? I mean, the reason I brought it up is: does this go? Does this? Does my experience with Dombey and Son go across the grain of everything we've been saying on Bibliophiles for lo these many years? <laughs> no, it's I not actually. So. Here's the way I put it: it's not actually a very faithful representation. Of what human beings are, and yet I read it and I thought, "Oh, the good, I embrace you. Oh, the bad, I shun you."
3: <laughs> well, it sounds like he accomplished his objective with his morality tale in you. He gave you an experience in a particular genre, and it was successful. What's the? Pro- I don't see the. That's problem- it. You
0: just put me to bed just like that. That's all there is.
3: Well, kind of. I mean, I mean, okay. On the one hand. Dickens has been charged with such things before. There are some who really yes. dislike Dickens who say uh, he, they dislike him because he doesn't create th- three-dimensional characters. They're one-dimensional characters and the whole thing looks like a vaudeville, not a vaudeville. Albeit, a, a, albeit know, some of the most vivid
1: one-dimensions ever written. Oh yeah, they're great.
3: Colorful, absolutely colorful. Yeah. Um, I happen to love Dickens and I think he was doing a, 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 an intentional thing here by creating this kind of a narrative. And um, morality tale was at the heart of a lot of what he did Mm -hmm. that those were his designs and he succeeded in you. And that's great. What we're suggesting here is that you should read stories as they were written to be read. Yes. Be an honest reader. That is exactly right. Read a morality tale like a morality tale ought to be read, whether you find it in Aesop or in Hans Christian Andersen or in Dickens.
0: So you may be giving me credit for realizing, even if subconsciously, that what I was reading was not intended to be read as a realistic portrayal of all the nuances and subtleties of life, but as as a morality tale. And that in being moved by that tale, I was actually just reading it correctly and taking it for what it was offering.
2: Yes, absolutely. He was describing objective reality uh, in the world and ideas that stand outside of human beings, and that in that he shares with the fairy tale. Yeah. Um, Okay. But going back to Ian's statement about genres, there are other artists who take it upon themselves to describe the reality of the human condition and the way we see it down here. And so, what we've been doing on Bibliophiles is Kind of assuming uh the reading of fairy tales to be what it is but defending something like the old man in the sea
1: right and, gotcha. and the reason we have to do that just to draw that point even a little bit even a little bit sharper and well shock i would like to make something a little more aggressive than it was before um <laughs> <laughs> the reason that we've spent you know how many episodes is it 70 some odd at this point um and, and in just about all of them, we come back around to this idea at, at some point or another. Um, the reason we've spent so long harping on this is because, and I'm not sure this needs a whole lot of defending, it is the human instinct to moralize, period. Yeah, it's, and, and I think that's biblically supportable. The law of God is written on our hearts. Like we, we do, we just do look around the world and seek to draw lines between good and evil and almost always, it's between the whitest possible good and the blackest possible evil. Nuance is not our game. It is, however, our nature. We don't want to think about it, but it's what's present in the hearts and souls of all readers and of all authors. And so what we're encouraging by, by, by admonishing readers to pay careful attention to genre and what it's for, and to read what's written, and to read it in the way that it was intended to be read— is to pay attention to the nuance of this particular art form. Mm-hmm. It isn't that there aren't any novels written in the way Dickens writes mm-hmm. for the sake of catering to the human instinct to paint the black as black as can be and paint the white as white as can be, right? It's that not all novels are doing that. Yeah, and we're just kind of it resisting. it takes more work. It takes more work to remind ourselves of that principle than it does to remind ourselves that there's black evil and white goodness.
3: Yeah. We're just resisting the reductionist tendencies, I mm. think, that... That's all that we're really trying to do. We're not disagreeing with the idea that there's such a thing as good and evil and that it's good to show kids and to see for ourselves examples of goodness all around us. It's encouraging, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes, sometimes it's damning because I'll tell you what, I grew up and I read Heidi and Heidi. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. I loved Heidi because she was so good. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was relentlessly cheerful She changed people's lives with her love and cheerfulness. And I wanted to be Heidi. But lo and behold, (laughs) I could not. (laughs) I found myself sour and dour and contentious and provocative and, you know, you name it. Over and over again, the little part of me that wanted to do good found that she'd done it again, you know. And I think honestly that that it can be really um, appropriately used. This kind of cultivation of the immoral imagination really does become a mirror by which we see ourselves lacking in those areas and are chased to Jesus. Mm
2: -hmm. That's what I really think. Mm -hmm.
3: I think those kinds of images chase us to Jesus, um, just like Paul was chased to Jesus when he said, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, right? Right
2: don't you think that that's where m- the majority of the great body of western art comes from is seeing with our eyes that, and knowing as you said ian that the law is written on our hearts even those who wouldn't acknowledge the law of god it's written on their hearts and um, art is our like us trying to come to terms with the fact that we can't live up to it mm. and th- that's where great art comes from is the struggle to look at ourselves and see i see this objective, and I have failed to meet it. Why? What's going on?
3: And how much yes. um, How much more thought-inducing when it's a nuanced depiction of this sort of thing, when you get within a single character, for example, grandeur and misery yes. simultaneously. I mean, like yeah. you do in all Shakespearean dramas, right? You've got the great king, the greatest guy that there is, and what does he do? Well, he falls because of this tragic flaw thus man you know it isn't
1: I think there's a there's a difference too between um between nuance and complexity I'm not just drawing a semantic line because sometimes the heart and soul of what makes something art is the fact that it takes something tremendously difficult and makes it very simple Mm -hmm. but I think that's different than the kind of simplicity that we find in a fairy tale or a fable which doesn't have a lot of Complexity to simplify. No, it's it's making a very straightforward, direct point, and maybe a, de- a working definition of art has to do with the presence of nuance, and yet it can be still understood. And I'm not sure a fable um, makes it all the way to that bar. Well, maybe I don't know if you can say tradition than art. So maybe, maybe you
3: can't say that it's not art, but it's a particular art form. And
1: it's sure. Okay, it's, um, I'll go there.
3: It's intended audience, maybe is young. Mm -hmm.
1: I
0: I was going to say though, maybe not, well, if, if what we've said about Dombey and Son is true, and obviously I just distilled a thousand pages down into a 30 second soundbite. So there's a lot more going on than that for sure. But if, if it's melodramatic qualities and it's simplicity, it's lack of nuance to use the word that Ian is using, um, puts it in the same category as a fairy tale or a fable, then the the reading level of the reader can't be the distinguishing factor there. I mean, is the implication of that, that, that tale, fable, melodrama caricature are at some lower rung of the literary art form ladder because of their lack of nuance.
1: Let's draw a comparison to music for a second, right? um, Another art form in which there's, it's possible to have great nuance in a simple melody. And furthermore, the more educated the reader is the more capable they are of seeing and understanding the nuance that is present even in a simple melody. But nobody would really argue with you about the fact that Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, while it may be one of the great melodies ever written, doesn't have a lot of nuance present, right? It's a nursery rhyme. It's the musical version of a nursery rhyme. Beautiful, catchy, has survived the centuries, deserves to be called art perhaps even, but nobody would compare it to a great symphony. So there's some sort of scale and there's some kinds of art that fall lower on the scale than other kinds. There has to be.
3: Now, I w- you know, I wouldn't even say that. I think I'd revise my comment. I don't think that it's necessarily um, just for children. I, In fact, I, I just bought a phone case, a new phone case. And it's a quote from Lewis. I'm going to read it to you. It says, Kay. one day you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. And, you know, it's obviously it's from his Narnia stories. And I think... It really does get at the heart of what I'm trying to say here. This idea that when you're an adult, oftentimes the nuances that you've experienced in real time overwhelm you and you need to see the, the stark lines that are present mm-hmm. in a morality tale again. Mm-hmm. You need mm-hmm. to... Um, recapture your bearings, those things that don't move, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a time and a place for each one. And we need a steady diet, a wide diet, mm-hmm. you know, of I a agree. variety of different kinds of literature. All that I'm saying is that we shouldn't limit ourselves only to stories that can be moralized. And we certainly shouldn't reduce all stories, regardless of the intention of the author, um, their, their genre or, or what have you. Um, to mere moralizing.
0: But your Agreed. your statement leaves room for a diet that includes moralizable tales that were intended for moral purposes. Absolutely. As the Narnia Chronicles certainly were, for example. Absolutely. Right.
3: Absolutely. In fact, they're some oh, of my favorite stories.
0: Um, wow. That was incredibly thought-provoking and provocative. I was hoping it would be provocative. I am provoked. <laughs> Are you Roth? <laughs> I am Roth. Uh, well, I'm going to do it for this edition of Bibliophiles, my friends. Thank you for coming along with us on one more wild ride. We'll do it again soon, and until we do, uh, please visit our websites and see what we're up to in the world of reading and books and teaching and thinking and relating to one another. Centerforlit.com, dot com, dot com. Love to see you inside. Go ahead and rate the podcast if you would give us some feedback so we know where to go from here and until we meet again my friends happy reading Happy,
2: reading. happy, happy reading. reading!
0: bibliophiles is a production of the center for lit podcast network find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation including the pelican society a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.